Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Um, I really feel like uh, Chris's word... I've got to move this out of the way, sorry. I really feel like Chris's word was um, pretty spot on today and was a good word for us. I appreciate him doing that. We are blessed with an awesome worship leader, aren't we? <clears throat> I appreciate Chris's humility and uh, I appreciate him delivering that word. He didn't know uh, the subject for my sermon this morning, but I'm actually going to take just a one-week break um, from talking on the vision because I really feel like I need to address this, which is really what um, Chris mentioned today. So let's open to the word in 2 Corinthians 13, and we'll get into it. Verse 5, it says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Let's pray. Father, today as we look at your word, we ask for hearts to be illumined. We ask for you to reveal yourself to us. We ask, God, that you are the one who knows our hearts. You are the searcher of hearts. And so I pray that you would open up our eyes to the state um, of our hearts personally. We thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation. We acknowledge and confess that it comes from you and you alone. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you, the triune God, are here with us now, that you draw close to us, that you walk with us, that you nurture us, that you are the one who sustains us. You are our encourager. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of gathering with our brothers and sisters in Christ today uh, to worship you and to hear from your word. So give us ears to hear, we ask now. Amen. So this past um, semester, I crafted uh, for one of Logan, my oldest son's uh, homeschool classes, I crafted a literature course for him, really just to get him to read a bunch of different books on a bunch of different subjects. Um, and then he had to write a paper on each one. <clears throat> and it was a variety of topics, fiction, nonfiction, all sorts of books. Um, one of the books I had him read um, was on dating and relationships. So he comes to me this past week, and, he's, and he says, you know that book that you had me read on dating and relationships? And I was like, yep. And he's like, I heard that guy kind of walked back some of his positions on dating and relationships. And I was like, yep. <laughs> I'm like, over the past couple of years, he's walked back a few things on dating and relationships. I said, but do you, know, you want to know what's, what's really, really sad? Is that just a few weeks ago, um, he announced he and his wife were getting a divorce. And I said, what's even sadder than that is that uh, <clears throat> that same day he denied the faith, or at least told everyone that he denied the faith, and he walked away from Christianity. Um, that's Josh Harris, for those of you who um, haven't kept up with the news. And if you're, oh, I don't know, maybe in your 20s, that may, name might not be as big a deal to you, but if you're probably maybe in your 30s or 40s, you've definitely heard the name Josh Harris. He's written a number of books on dating and relationships, 
and even other books, books that I've used and, and taken young men through that I have found very helpful. Um, but just a few weeks ago, uh, he announced on Instagram of all places that he and his wife were divorcing, that he denied the faith in its entirety, which is very, very, very sad. Um, then just this past week, one of the worship leaders uh, for Hillsong, a Christian worship band, um, expressed, in his, uh, as he put it, that he was genuinely losing his faith. And then he went on to ask a bunch of questions. Uh, then he kind of walked it back a couple days later um, and said he hadn't renounced his faith, but it was on incredibly shaky ground. But, but here's what he said. Um, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. He goes on, Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. I am not in anymore. And then again, he goes and asks a bunch of of basic, what I would consider basic questions that I hear from people um, out in the social media world, I hear from skeptics when you share with people, these are the questions that you hear from, from people uh, about Christianity all the time. Um, one of the, the things I just, this is kind of my introduction, by the way, but one of the things that I would say frustrates me a little bit, I, I'm okay with anyone having doubts. People probably in here have some doubts or are working through their faith. That's okay. It just, to me, is like, when people, especially a prominent leader like this, um, is clearly, in their own words, struggling with their faith, like, why invite us into your confusion? You know? Like, you're clearly at a place of doubt and unsure, and you're trying to figure out answers, but why are you inviting us into, into your confusion and potentially and very likely creating doubt for thousands of people, especially younger people, who follow your Instagram and are following what exactly you're saying on these things, and you're asking questions that for whatever reason God in, in his providence hasn't brought to them yet, and maybe they're just young enough they haven't thought of that, and you're just like throwing up all over them all this stuff. And it's not very helpful. Further, what happens if he actually comes back to the faith, and in the process, though, he's cre- created so much doubt for other people that he's shipwrecked their faith? It's not helpful. I would <clears throat> much respect him if he went to his pastors or his spiritual mentors and worked through some of those questions in a more private matter. That's really the best way to do it. If he wants to come and then announce what his conclusions are once he's done that, I mean, that's his prerogative. But I've had people come and ask me questions. And the thing is, um, people want satisfying answers for some of these tough questions, but they want it in like 50 words or less. You know, they want a Twitter answer. And we've, we've grown up in this, like, uh, bite-sized theology, and so people's faith ends up being bite-sized and very shallow. And the best they can do for some of these things is give, like, a 25- or 50-word answer, which isn't sufficient for some of these more challenging questions. <clears throat> Some questions regarding Christianity are pretty straightforward and simple. You can ask, answer them in 25 or 50 uh, words or less, depending on who you're talking to and the situation that you're addressing. But some things are very challenging. I mean, think some of you are getting ready to start. Actually, I think 
Um, I know St. Charles Community College starts uh, tomorrow. So some of you are getting ready to start your, your college classes. Some of you have already started your high school classes. And I mean, think if you walked into your biology class or your physics class or your math class and the professor's like, hey, we're going to deal with this really complex problem today and I'm going to show you the way to do it in 25 words. Now, do you honestly, he's either the most brilliant professor ever, unlikely, or um, you're not going to understand how to do the problem after he explains it. These 25 words or 50 words isn't going to be sufficient enough for you to understand that particular problem. Same thing with like any type of science. I mean, imagine trying to fully understand nuclear fusion or nuclear fission or any of those other challenging topics. And the professor's like, hey, here's my bite-sized answer. Um, It's on the board, just 25 words, we're done for the day. Now, short term, you might like that because you get out of class pretty early. Um, But when it comes to the test and and truly understanding that information, you're going to be in a lot of hot water. So we, as believers, need to be careful not to give our older children, not to give our coworkers, not to give our neighbors bite-sized answers that require a feast to truly answer. So <clears throat> even some of the questions that the Hillsong leader was asking, um, those are basic apologetic questions that sometimes you can get a pretty satisfying answer even just by Googling it. Um, so I was kind of scratching my head on some of the questions he was asking. Perhaps the environment he's been in hasn't dealt with some of those things. If that's the case, it's sad. Um, because I think we should welcome questions. I don't think Christianity has anything to hide. I remember when I first got saved, I was kind of like, oh man, if, if I kind of look into this Christianity thing a little bit more, you know, maybe if I dig deep enough, I'm going to find like that, that one thing that just disproves the whole thing. Right? So sometimes there's, I think we can have that ignorance is bliss sort of, you know, just like, ah, I don't hear it. <clears throat> but my mind wouldn't allow me to fully take that approach. I loved the academic side. I, I loved learning. I loved studying. So I was like, well, I'm just going to keep digging. And guess what, friends? After 24-plus uh, years or so, I've never found anything that has come close to that. And not only that, there's been hundreds and thousands of years of Christianity where people have been digging and digging and digging, and they haven't come up with it. Why? Because it's not there. It's not there. There's no magic bullet that's going to disprove Christianity. It has stood the test of time. Thousands of years. Literally. So I understand when prominent Christian leaders fall, I get it. It can, it can shake us. Um, it can especially shake us if we've looked up to them, if we've, if we've learned from them. But here's what I want to talk about today, is when these things happen... There's a few things we should do. You ready for them? Good. First one is this. We need to remember what the Bible says. And the Bible says this. People will fall away. That's what it says. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Jesus here is talking about the end of the ages. He starts in verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, 
even the elect. So <clears throat> it's, not, it's not a great comfort that people fall away. But to me, it's a great comfort that the word has already told us that that's going to happen. So if the word gave us the picture that no one ever falls away and, and everyone once they're in, they're in, and, and no one walks away from the faith and they're in there for good, and then we're seeing people walk away, like, that'd be hard to kind of reconcile. That might shake us a little more. But the fact that the word is pretty clear that people will fall away, then when we see it happen, what that's doing is only confirming what the word has said will occur. Now, that doesn't make us happy that it's occurring, but at least the word is consistent with what we are seeing. So when people fall away, it shouldn't really catch us by surprise. Now, maybe that particular person, you know, who would have thought Josh Harris? You know what that means, though, friends? That means that each one of us has to be vigilant about our own faith. And that if it can happen to person A, maybe who you respect, or person B, who you look up to, or person C, who was appearing so godly, guess what? It can happen to you. It can happen to you. It can happen to you. Each one of us can end up in that situation if we don't take steps, if we don't stay true to Christ. So here Jesus is talking about false Christ and false prophets. We take this to mean other religions, other false teachings from people purporting truth um, or falsehood in the church, and that's accurate. But we have many, many false saviors in the world today promising us all sorts of salvation. And we have many, many false prophets in the world offering us all sorts of false hope. <clears throat> Yet, these false saviors and prophets, they convert people. They might not convert them to another religion. We don't really see people falling away from Christianity for the most part becoming uh, this religion or that religion. No, their religion really becomes a, a humanist religion, a self-centered religion, a religion about them. But if you've ever watched a TV show or a movie, um, there's all sorts of false teaching going on oftentimes. If you have ever watched commercials, there's all sorts of false teaching going on. Who's the false teacher in those instances? Well, it's the movie director. It's the commercial producer, right? But listen, none of us, none of us are beyond being deceived. We can all be tricked and duped in all sorts of areas of our lives. Well, someone might say, well, if I was deceived, I'd know it. Well, not really. That's kind of the point. You're deceived. And you're not thinking accurately on a particular subject or in a particular area. Look at Romans chapter 7. Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. See, what happens is, is we think, oh, sin. Sin is so good, isn't it? It's so good. And you're like, oh, Pastor, I don't think that's the right answer. But we get deceived into thinking that. That sin is so good because we're deceived. And if you've ever got to the point where you're like, hmm, that sin might be worth doing. Or, hmm, that sin might be worth the consequences. Or, hmm, I might just go ahead and do that, regardless of the consequences. Guess what? You're being deceived. You're being deceived. Listen, sin never satisfies. It never does. Worldly pleasure for a bit? Sure. Satisfaction? No. It will leave you empty, empty, empty. It will be like Proverbs talks about, gravel in the mouth. It will not satisfy. It will deceive you into thinking you can be satisfied. But it will not satisfy. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. It says in verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So even in the early church, some had stopped meeting together. I mean, what's going on? Well, they're getting lax. They're slowing down. They're letting things slide. Oh, is going to church every week that important? Well, apparently some in the early church were saying no. But guess what? It is. For many reasons, it is. And the answer is yes. One of the reasons is for the benefit of your soul. All right? You need soul care. You need admonishment. You need teaching. You need encouragement. You need community. God's answer is the local church. Always has been, always will. I mean, what's our habit, though? Is it church when it works out? Church is the second option? No, let us not give up meeting together, as is the habit of some. Next, look at 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Did you see how it talked about in verse 2? Many will follow their sensuality. They'll fall away. The cravings of the flesh, they'll give in to. And what's the result? Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. That's what happened when these two people denied the faith. The way of truth was blasphemed. People walking away from the faith, you know, I'd say the first 10 years or so after I got saved, um, 
especially the, the, the more I knew the person the, or the more I knew about the person, uh, it, it really shook me. I mean, I was like, man, how could you walk away from this? You know, something so amazing, so awesome, so beautiful. I mean, it's like walking away from paradise. Seriously. So when someone walked away, like actually denied the faith, I mean, it did shake me. And part of me was like, well, maybe they know something I don't. Like, have they stumbled upon some truth? The truth is, I know something they don't. They apparently didn't have something that was essential, that God has been graced for those that are believers to have and hold on to. Look, if Judas, think about this for a second. If Judas can be with Jesus for three years, I mean, he's, he's doing everything with him. He's doing life with him. They're eating together. They're staying in the same location. He's seen him preach to the crowd. I mean, he's hearing the teaching, literally, from the mouth of Jesus. And he's seen the miracles, the food multiplying. I mean, all that stuff, on and on and on and on. Like, if, G- if Judas can walk away, then anyone can walk away. I mean, Judas was there. I mean, if anyone doesn't have an excuse, it's Judas. But he walked away. So, <clears throat> when I heard Josh Harris had kissed Christianity goodbye, um, I was more in shock than anything. And it makes me sad. And I've prayed for him quite a bit. Um, and other people that I hear about, especially those that I personally know, make me very, very sad. I've had good friends deny the faith. Not just fade away, but just flat out deny it. Um, it doesn't shake me as much anymore. Why? Because the scripture is clear that some will fall away. It makes me very sad, but doesn't shake me as much. I guess in part because I've become more resolute and what the scriptures say, and where my faith is grounded in Christ. Um, the scripture is clear that narrow is the road that leads to life. I remember being in college, I was sharing with a classmate, and he looked at me and he's like, I used to be like you. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I used to talk to people about Jesus, I used to share Jesus with people, um, but I don't believe it anymore. And I just kind of, without even thinking, I blurted out. I was like, you know, how can you experience Jesus and, and then turn away completely from that? Like, did you really experience Jesus? Or did you just really experience something that you, was some type of form of what you thought was Jesus? Because me personally, I couldn't turn away from that. I mean, to experience the risen Savior. Think about that. I mean, I'd like to, you know, and I have had conversations with some of these people, but, I mean, to deny the reality of some of the things that you've experienced, I know experiences, I mean, you can, they can be subjective, I get that. But to encounter Jesus, to know him, to see that, to see other people, to see the work that he's doing, I mean, that is, that is sad. So it needs to be a warning for us. That's my second point. Um, if you're still in Matthew, or go back to Matthew 24, 
I want you to see something here that maybe you've missed previously. In verse 3, it says this of Matthew 24. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So notice, this isn't all the crowds gathered around. This is the, the disciples. And what do they do? It says they came to Jesus privately. All right? So it's like, I don't know, maybe uh, it's at the end of the day or, or they're on their way and, and it's just them going along and they want to ask Jesus about this. So there's no one else around here. They come to him, ask him this privately, uh, saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Verse 4, Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. So think about that. This is him privately addressing the disciples, those who walked with Jesus for three years, and he's warning them and them specifically and them directly see that no one leads you astray. He's not talking to the crowds at this point. He's talking to his disciples. So it's, it's a warning for us. This is a warning for us. See that no one leads you astray. This is why we get verses like in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, it's pretty clear, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, Paul could have just said, bad company corrupts good morals. And that would have been the truth. But notice, I mean, you can do a little search. <clears throat> might make a great sermon sometimes, but just do a little search on do not be deceived. Those three words, four words. Um, those four words, and see all the times. It only occurs a handful of times in the scripture, but then it's like, do not be deceived, and then it gives us an instruction. Well, there's something there, because the idea is, obviously, on this particular subject that I'm about to instruct you on, you can be deceived. Enough so that I need to warn you that you can be deceived. So it's a warning for us to not be led astray. We need to be on guard so that we're not deceived. We need to be on guard so we're not duped by the world or our own flesh. Part of that comes through the armor of God, right? Ephesians 6. Part of that comes with the word. That's our sword. It comes with our shield of faith. It comes with the belt of truth, the helmet of righteousness, all of those things working together as your armor. And those people that are getting knocked down, they're missing parts of their armor. That's what's happening. So second, it's a warning for us, not for the person next to you, in front of you, behind you. No, the warning is for you. For you. Third, don't let their Christianity determine your Christianity. Or if you want to say it another way, don't let their faith determine your faith. You've got your life to live before God. Okay? And someday, you're going to stand before God. Not you and the Hillsong leader, not you and Josh Harris, not you and anybody. But just you. Just you before God. So you've got to live your life before God. That person has to live their life before God. They're accountable to God for how they live. You're accountable to God for how you live. So live your life before God 
as he wants you to. You want your faith to be strong so that if others fall away and deny Jesus, you'd stand strong. Here's the thing, friends. This will happen at some point. This will happen at some point. Jesus goes on in Matthew 24. Look back with me. He says in verse 9, Then they will deliver, deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now this is going on in some countries right now. And then look at this. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Jesus ain't saying this might happen. Jesus is saying this will happen. And each one of us needs to be prepared for that. Many, it says, will fall away. We might live to see that happen right here in our own backyard. And friends, you need to be ready and you need to be prepared because the church in general has given so much um, junk food and sugar water to drink and to eat that it is not prepared. And if you're not careful, you won't be prepared. This is why it's about you and Jesus. You and Jesus. You're going to be accountable to the Father. You have one person who can intercede for you. That is Jesus. You need to be very near to him. Any one of us can be led astray. Any one of us can get off the right path. And we need to be prepared because the persecution is, is picking up. That's just the truth. Christianity, we're, we're really living, sadly, in a post-Christian nation. And what we are as believers, as true believers, we are becoming more the minority. <clears throat> and, and the tables are slowly being turned. I think we've had a respite for a few years here. I don't know if that will continue. We should take every advantage we have right now of sharing the gospel. Because right now, you know, the, the greatest thing we have um, is maybe being made fun of. I guess potentially um, if, if we could lose our job. But I think if we're wise, we can, we can figure out ways to avoid that as well at this point. But those days appear to be slowly ending, maybe quickly ending. Um, and we might live to see that day. We probably will. All right. I hope you all visit me in prison. <laughs> I'm not really joking. I appreciate that. <laughs> you might be there with me, Greg. Yes. <clears throat> so that's my third point. Don't let their Christianity determine your Christianity. Fourth, build your faith on the rock of Christ. All right, as the song says, all other ground is sinking sand. All right, so you have the parable of building the house on the rock or on the sand. We need to build it on the rock. I had a, my religious professor who was also my religious, uh, my, my advisor for my degree in religious studies at Mizzou. Um, people were taking his class and it was, it was shipwrecking their faith, honestly, um, the the stuff he was teaching. So I emailed him. I think I've told you this story. But I emailed him and I was like, Professor, I'm concerned that these people's faith is on the sand 
and we need to help build it on the rock because he's claiming to be a believer. So, like, what can we do to help these people? Because some of the stuff you're teaching, like, it's, it's messing people up, and they're losing faith in Christ. They're losing faith in the Word of God. And his response was, um, if their faith is going to fall, it might as well be in my class. Now, that is not the heart of someone that is concerned about people's faith. All right? If I met someone and, I, and their faith was shaky, they're struggling, I'm not just going to be like, all right, let's take it down. Right? No, like, I want to shepherd that person. I want to minister to that person. I want to help that person. Not so in this case. You've got to build your faith on the rock of Christ. Fifth, truth doesn't depend on us. Truth doesn't depend on us. Truth is truth, whether we believe it or not. Two plus two equals four. I might not believe that. I might think that's false. I might think two plus two equals five. But it doesn't matter what I believe regarding truth. I can believe two plus two equals five all I want with all the faith in the world. That doesn't change the fact that it's not true. All right, two plus two will equal four. It always will. It always has. A hundred years from now. T plus 2 is still going to equal 4. Truth is truth. It does not change. It doesn't depend on us. Look at Romans chapter 3. Paul says in verse 1, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? This verse right here applies exactly to what we're talking about today. What if some were unfaithful? We have people being unfaithful, people falling away. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? No. Look what Paul says. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God is true. The truth doesn't depend on us. Whatever God says, that's what goes. We might not like it. We might really like it. It doesn't matter. What he says goes. He is true, and so his word is true. And since he is true and can only speak truth, whatever he tells us is truth. God does not lie He does not deceive. He does not trick. So we're faced with that verse we originally started in, in 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves. And then he says, just a few words later, test yourselves. So let me ask you a couple questions. Have you experienced the true Jesus? Have you met him? Do you know him? Because here's what it says. I want everyone to see this in Matthew 7. This is very important. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It doesn't matter what you do 
You can do all those great things. It doesn't matter what you do if you don't know Jesus. I mean, these are his words. Right here. Depart from me, he says. I never knew you. So knowing Jesus equals life. And knowing just the rules equals death. And knowing Jesus equals salvation. But knowing just the laws equals legalism. And knowing Jesus equals soul satisfaction. But knowing just the works equals damnation. You have to have Jesus. And here's what you need to do. You need to ask yourself where you are at with the Lord. Right now, you need to ask yourself that. And if your response is like, I'm fine, like that's a dangerous place to be. I'm just saying. If you're not even going to take a moment's pause to think about that question, then you're ignoring the very verse that I began with. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. So you need to pause. You don't want a cavalier attitude when it comes to your very soul. We're talking about the place of your heart. We're talking about your position before God. This is very serious stuff. So each person here should answer these questions after honest reflection. Where am I at with the Lord? Am I in the faith? Am I really saved? And don't just be like, yeah, I'm good. Don't be like that. Pause. Reflect. Consider. Like, seriously, don't answer so quickly. Give it some honest reflection. Look, when people fall away, it's a warning for us all. And if we're not grounded in the Word, if we're not truly Christ's, then we're vulnerable, each one of us. So we need to examine and test our own faith. Look, God himself was gracious enough that our relationship with him was broken. And he wanted to be reconciled to us. He didn't have to have that. Nothing required that of him. But he wanted reconciliation. Not just with like humanity as a whole, but individuals. Each one of you. Reconciliation. So there's broken relationship. Um, Some of you are married. Maybe some of you have a boyfriend or girlfriend. I know your marriages aren't like that, but some marriages people argue occasionally. Sometimes there's some broken relationships. And what happens? If there's been sin, there has to be some type of reconciliation within that marriage. There has to be an acknowledgement of the wrong, a confession of that, a forgiveness given by the offended party, right? There has to be reconciliation. And that's how it is with us and the Father. There's broken relationship. So we have to come, and one, the question is, do we want that reconciliation? Maybe we're fine just being, having it broken, and we don't really care about the Father, and we're good doing our own thing. Well, I hope that's not the case. But if we want the reconciliation, we have to come, and just like you'd make a relationship with your friend or your spouse or your coworker, right? You don't, I mean, some families, <clears throat> there's like this dysfunction. You just like act like nothing happens, right? And there's just sin left and right and left and right, and it's never dealt with. That's not biblical. 
There has to be a dealing with the sin. You have to deal with it, all right? God, amazingly enough, we can try to deal with it on our own. That's how we get the works-based mentality. If you think about it, we're trying to deal with our own sin. Like, I'm going to do this for God, and then he's going to be good with me. No. Normally, in a broken relationship, it would be on the party that's the sinner or the one that did the sin to initiate the reconciliation. In our own sin, though, we were so lost, we can't even do that. God had to initiate the process. And he did it through his son, Jesus. So he initiates that process. It wasn't really even upon him to have to do that. But he loved us so much that that's what he did. He is the one that opened that door for reconciliation. Not us. He comes to us. He's the offended party, but he comes to us to reconcile, to offer that reconciliation to each person here. But you've got to want that reconciliation. That requires you, as the party that created the offense, that did the sin, that sinned against the holy God, you've got to confess that. You've got to confess it. You've got to acknowledge it. You've got to realize that there is nothing you can do for that reconciliation. That someone else has to do it. And God did it through his son Jesus. That's how the reconciliation occurs. Do you trust in that? That's really the question, what God did for you. Do you trust in that? That's what God wants to know. Do you trust in that? Do you trust him? That he came to you, to each one of you, and offers the reconciliation through his son. And then you have to answer if you want to be reconciled. Do you want that relationship that's been messed up, made right with God? Do you want it it made right? Do you want the wholeness? Do you want the completeness? Each one of us has to answer that. If we say yes, God, God doesn't hold things back from us. If you want eternal life, if you want that relationship with Jesus, if you want that reconciliation with the Father, it comes through the gift of faith. And God pours out His grace through faith Unto you, unto salvation. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Right? So that's available for each one of us. And some people assume, you know, since they go to church, since they're pretty good, since they don't do horrible, heinous crimes, like they're okay with God. That's not the gospel. All right, just coming here weekly. I'm glad you come. I want you to keep coming. That's awesome. I love seeing you. But that doesn't do you any good to get to heaven. It doesn't. All right? It's through the relationship with Jesus. It's through the reconciliation with the Father. That's what grants you salvation. And it's God's to grant. And he will grant it to any who come seeking him. Any person. I mean, isn't it amazing sometimes, like, the people God saves? Including you. Sometimes I'm just like, oh, man, how'd that Liberty member get saved? It's just amazing. There really is a God, man. He's so good. Miracles all the time, including myself. God is so good to even save just one of us. How much more gracious is he to save thousands, tens of thousands, 
hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, and billions. He is very, very, very gracious. All who trust and believe can be reconciled. I encourage you, if you have not been reconciled to the Father, to be reconciled to him today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are the one that comes to us, that you are the one that wants to be reconciled, that you saw us in our utter filth, in our utter sin, in our utter disgust, and you still wanted us. And we're humbled by that. And we thank you for that. And I ask, Father, that each person here would trust in you through the work of your Son for what you did for them and be truly reconciled to you. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't have a real faith that you would speak to them. You'd be gracious to show them that maybe they're deceived and think they are okay with you and they're really not. Wipe away the deception. Take away the veil. Open up our hearts, Lord, to the truths that we've heard today. Let them be buried deep in our soul. Not to just brush them aside or conveniently forget about them, but to dwell on these truths, Lord. I pray for each one of us that when the day of testing comes, we'd each stand firm. That it might say that many will fall away, Lord, but we would not be one of the many. We'd stick to the narrow path that each one of us would stick to the narrow path, regardless of the cost, even unto death. Let us remain faithful and true to you. We pray this with the authority you give us in your son Jesus. Amen.